welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Um, we go to school, we learn things, we retain certain things, you go through English, um, you get the rhetoric of how to speak the English properly or well. Um, you go to science class, you get your reasoning and your logic from science, but there's another course that you take and it, and it kind of determines some of your uh, morality and some of your spirituality and some of your normal thought processing uh, and, and ideas. And that topic is history. Today I have with me a very, very special guest. Her name is Barbara. And Barbara is here to talk to us about history and to talk to us about what has molded and what has brought her to the forefront uh, of encouraging history and um, identifying roles and responsibilities that we should have with history. So Barbara, would you please take over real quick and explain why you're here today, who you are, and a little bit of uh, more about you, like something real interesting about you just to be a nice icebreaker for the audience. Uh, thanks, JR. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to talk with your listeners today. Uh, as you said, I spent the majority of my life teaching, and my passion has always been history. So when I was growing up, I grew up in a working class family in New York City, and my parents didn't have a lot of money. So it didn't seem as if college would be in the cards for me, but as it turned out, that changed. I worked very hard and I was able to get myself into the, uh, at the time, free public college system. So I was able to go to college. I majored in history because I loved finding out about people and, and where they went and why they did it. So not having the opportunity to travel when I was young, I was always interested in finding out more about the world. So I majored in history. I took a, a undergraduate degree, a graduate degree in history. And then when I got out, I decided I still loved history, but I wanted to work more with people. I didn't want to live in the ivory tower world of academia. So I, started teaching. And for 20 years, I worked with kids in elementary school before I started to think about how there were problems in education and the system was failing a lot of kids. So I went back to school again and I took another graduate degree in special education. And I started working uh, with children that had severe special needs. And I did that for uh, approximately another 20 years. And I, I went through different roles. I was a classroom special ed teacher and a principal and administrator. But all that time, I still loved my history so that when I finally retired from my formal career, I decided I'd combine my two loves. And now I write history books for children with the mission to inspire and entertain and help them understand how they are all characters in history and how they can become empowered and even leaders of their community by learning about and understanding history. So that's just a little bit about me. <laughs> okay, so so let's go back in time. Let's go back to your childhood real quick. Now, Growing up, 
you said um, you grew up middle class, um, and you you got a desire to learn about history. What was the first thing in history that intrigued you? Because the reason I'm asking you this is because I come from the great state of Virginia. I do live in West Virginia, but I'm from Virginia. And Virginia, the first bit of history that got me was not necessarily my own state's history. It was Roanoke Island. Uh, hearing the story about Roanoke Island was the first thing that I remember history-wise that, that, right. that intrigued me. The Lost Colony. Yes. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it was just... I think the early explorers were what first got me interested in history and all, all the way back in elementary school. But of course, history uh, used to be taught from textbooks and that's not the way history is taught today. In fact, history isn't really taught very much in, in elementary school today. It's not until high school that history is taught and then it's taught in a more uh, formal, global type of way. Uh, uh, most of the states have the common core and it's kind of a, you know, a teaching to pass the test. It's not learning about people in reality. So my interest in history was seeing people as real human beings who were just like me. And that's the way I approach history, when I talk to children, I tell them that you're all characters in history. And the moment you're born, you become a character in history because you are a part of a family. You have ancestors of people who came before you and you are now going to play your part in, in that role. And eventually there will be people that come after you. And our communities are just people like us who are wrapped in memories, who come together for certain reasons. They have a, a common purpose, a common culture. They have common customs, common traditions, common ideas, or they might come together to work for certain economic ends, but they have certain goals in, in common. And eventually that goes out into the wider world. So we become citizens of a global community and we have to learn that we all have a part to play that. And, and that's all a part of uh, learning about our identity. History teaches us about our identity, who we are, how we fit into our family, our community, our world. And when we teach children how to think critically, then they are empowered to have all the other skills that they need to succeed in life. Okay. And um, one thing, like you said, you were talking about the educational system. I've noticed even from the time that I, I was in school, we learned from textbooks. We didn't do, we didn't have all this. We had technology when I grew up, but we did not have iPads and all that stuff. So my question to you is, because you've been an educator all this time, what are some of the issues that children have now that they didn't have back when I was learning and when you were learning? Because to me, it seems like it, it's like there's some type of miscommunication or something is just lacking in their education when it comes to history. Well, I think there's a lot lacking in education in general. Uh, it's not just history, but 
history in particular teaches children how to think critically because when you study history you have to learn to focus on a problem or a purpose or an issue and then you have to learn to analyze what was happening so you have to learn about all the people who were in the situation you have to learn about how those people were connected to each other you have to learn about what else was going on what other events or influences were going on in, in their community and in the world at that time and how did it shape them and what was happening and how are these people communicating with each other? The way we communicate today, that's one big difference. And I think that's a, a lot of the problem in education because now that we have instant communication, we don't learn the way people used to learn. Uh, we, we don't have letter writing, for instance. We don't rely on newspapers. We rely on social media. So we are looking for an instant answer. And children are so attuned to getting the answer immediately that they don't know how to analyze the issues. They don't know how to see more than one side to a question. They don't know how to discuss different viewpoints because they're so in tune with the one instant. They go to the internet, they type in their question, they get an answer and that's their answer. And then particularly if their peers and um, their, their friends uh, agree with them, then that reinforces their opinion and they don't look any further. So I think teachers are uh, very much uh, hampered by uh, the influence of social media today. They're not really uh, having the uh, initial attention of the, of the child in class because their mind is just, you know, working uh, they can't focus more than a couple of minutes on some on some things, and uh, uh, they don't ask those questions: uh, who, what, when, where, why, uh, or putting all of those things together before they get the answer. Because and sometimes in history, sometimes the answer is there is no one answer. There are a lot of reasons why things happen and we have to explore all of them we can't just you know look for that quick solution and say well this has to be the answer and that's another reason people are unable to sit down and have good discussions about things uh because people get so locked in to their social group and their view they become uh, very egocentric they see everything from one viewpoint, whether it's because it, their friends agree with them, whether it's a moral viewpoint, or the people in their religion support one viewpoint and no other, or whether it's uh, simply because uh, they're, they're just uh, judgmental and 
you know, refuse to listen to any other opinion. So I think schools have to get back to teaching those skills, the asking the questions, inferring, looking at several points of view, analyzing them, and looking at all of the other influences going on before they can come to a conclusion. Okay. And, and I, one thing I picked up there that I agree with wholeheartedly, deductive thinking has been erased. It's not even a terminology that people use anymore. Just because, you know, like you said, that's one thing, deductive thinking, reasoning and all that takes uh, people away from just doing things. Now, like, like you jumped into also social media, the behavior of people. I've noticed even in my generation, I graduated in 2004, 2005, 2006, going off to college and stuff. Facebook was was getting big, you know, that, that quick instant, um, like you said, that quick communication, that way, a way to derive something. And sometimes the, the information you get is not actual factual. So, or actually, yeah, it's actually factual. So it makes it hard uh, for you to even know if you're getting a true truth in the world. Now, um, what are your thoughts on on this part here? You uh, decided that after your lengthy time as being uh, an education enforcer, as I'll call it, you journey off into becoming an author. What uh, are some of the hindrances that have happened in publishing? And what made you decide that you wanted to make history books for children? Well, uh, okay, that has been an interesting journey. I have been writing my whole life, of course, because being a history major and an English minor, I did a lot of writing in college, but those were academic papers, which is a lot different from uh, being an author and writing books. Now, my books are nonfiction books, so I am writing facts, but because I wanted to make them super interesting and entertaining for children, I incorporated a fictional character as a narrator. So we came up with this idea. My, my books are also picture books. They are heavily illustrated with photography. They're mixed media. So I use photography and hand-drawn illustration, as well as the narrator in all of my books. So there are portraits in my books, there are actual photographs, there are pictures of the character, the narrator. Now, who is the narrator? The narrator is Little Miss History uh, and how the idea came about for her, she's a cartoon-like character. And Little Miss History is kind of a, a teenager who takes the children on the journey to all of these places. And she's a really a combination of a younger version of myself. So my illustrator, who happens to be my husband, who is Ooh. an artist, <laughs> he is an artist, been drawing since the age of five, and uh, he has uh, also done children's books and he's also done cartooning and a lot of cartoon characters. He has his own car pirate series of cartoon characters. So he created this version, a younger version of me and she incorporates a lot of 
my interests and characteristics. So for instance, she wears kind of a hiking camper outfit because I used to love to hike in the mountains. And I always wanted to travel. So I was kind of an explorer myself. She wears pigtails like I used to wear. She wears these hiking boots that are oversized. And those are in memory of my father's very huge feet. And she also wears these rose colored glasses, which reflect an optimistic viewpoint of the world, always trying to look on the bright side of things. So that's the character Little Miss History. And she narrates all of the books. So in the books, the children are taken to places and they meet people that are sometimes very familiar iconic places in history. So I have 14 books right now and I'm coming out with another one uh, soon. And some of them are places that everyone would recognize like the Statue of Liberty or uh, Ellis Island, uh, Mount Rushmore. Other books are a little bit different like the, I have a book on La Brea Tar Pits and Museum where I go back into prehistory and we talk about the La Brea Tar Pits and it's an active archaeological site. I talk about some national parks like Sequoia National Forest. We talk about the redwood trees, the, the sequoia trees. So there we talk a lot about science and environment. The North Pole book, we talk about geography, we talk about the tundra, we talk about the wildlife, we talk about uh, the explorers who came there, we talk about uh, the, of course, we talk about the Santa Claus story and how it came to be. But all of my books incorporate interactive focuses. So I always ask questions that I expect children to answer. For instance, in the Mount Rushmore book, we talk about how the land from Mount Rushmore originally belonged to the Lakota Sioux and how the land was given to them in a treaty and then taken back by the government. And we talk about the uh, Crazy Horse Memorial, which the Lakota Sioux are now building near Mount Rushmore, and they're building a monument to their leader. So we talk about these two, and we talk about Native American rights. We talk about what do they think? Should we have one monument? Should we have two? How should we honor two great peoples? And I, I bring into my books characters who may have been forgotten in history, like Andrew, Andrew um, Anderson Ruffett Abbott, who was at Ford's Theater when Lincoln was shot. He, he was uh, an African-American surgeon who dated uh, Mary Lincoln's maid and uh, happened to be there. And he was, a, he was a surgeon and a friend of the Lincoln family. He uh, was given uh, a gift by uh, Mary Lincoln. She actually gave him one of Lincoln's shawls, which was in his family for, you know, for over a hundred years. So we talk about things that kids might not know and that many adults may not know that there's a secret room behind the heads on Mount Rushmore. 
Uh, we talk about military history. Some of my books, I talk about the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum or the Battleship Iowa. We talk about the roles that it played in various warfare and also in other aspects of history like the um, Intrepid uh, was involved in retrieving early space capsules. It was also uh, in, involved uh, in uh, the Vietnam War. And we talk about how children can visit and explore the deck and, and what they can do and, and experience there. So as I said, my books are all very uh, interactive, exploring people, exploring issues and exploring, again, ideas that children can critically think about and go off on their own to explore more. Okay, one part of the show that we do, we call it the shameless plug. Could you plug real uh, real fast where people could go get your books, where they can meet you on social media, basically how they can get in tune with you and become part of your persuasion? Well, the best place uh, to get in touch with me is at the website, which is simply littlemisshistory.com. And from there, they can retrieve all of my resources. So besides my books, which are all mentioned there, you could see the books, you can see where to buy them. You can also see what other people have said about them. You can go to my blog and I do lots of things on my blog for parents. I review all kinds of family-friendly books from toddlers to young adults. I give tips for parents, tips for authors. I have a YouTube channel. On my YouTube channel, I have kids history videos. So history for kids that's told by kids. I have teaching videos, small, very small and short teaching videos that parents uh, and teachers can use. I have uh, trivia videos. I have videos on the national parks. And I also have um, a very active Pinterest board. So I collect resources for parents and teachers. And if they go to my Pinterest board, they can find books for children by age. They can and find teaching materials. They can find parent uh, resources and, and all kinds of things, as well as my social media channels. So I have a YouTube YouTube, but I also have Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and, and so on. So from that site, you can get to any of my free resources or, or anything at all that's connected with teaching or learning with Little Miss History. Okay. Now, let me ask you this, because uh, this is where you're going to give back to the authors in this episode and help people. Um, what were some of the publishing woes that you uh, had to overcome or obstacles that you had to overcome with uh, presenting this in you know, because you have to have an elevator pitch when you send it, you know, when you, unless you go independent, independent. What was your uh, sales pitch or your elevator pitch for your books? Well, um, my sales pitch is that I want to entertain, I want to inspire, and I want to empower children who we will become the leaders of our communities tomorrow by giving them the tools to succeed in learning how to think critically and become 
responsible members of their community and their world. Okay. Now, were there any issues when you decided to take this to publish it? Did anything come up that? Well, I had absolutely no experience in publishing. I published through a small publishing company, so I am not technically independently published. But today, unless you are a part of four or five major companies, you pretty much do everything on your own. So all authors are faced with the same issues. They have to learn how to write a good title or create a platform for their books. In my case, I have uh, my logo and my character are trademarked because I do have a book series and not all authors have a book series. But in my case, that's what I did for, right from the outset. You have to develop keywords. You have to know how you're going to get your readers to find your book. So writing the correct keywords is very important. Doing the categories to put your books when you're listing it online, writing a, a good description of your book. So people are gonna have the gist of what your book is about and they'll be able to tell quickly what they're going to be reading. Uh, you, and you, the marketing is probably the hardest piece, learning how to market your book, finding uh, the place where the type of reader for your particular genre and book niche, it, where they hang out and, and where to find them and you know what their interests are and how to help them uh, solve some of their problems because you want to have uh, trust and, and credibility with, with your readers and your audience. So those were all things that you have to learn how to do step by step. And you have to have a lot of patience and perseverance because uh, you learn the hard way. You find a network of people that, uh, that you can work with. Uh, some authors, new authors make the mistake of seeing competitors uh, as a negative thing, but competitors are really your best friends because you can work with people who are in a similar niche and you can learn from each other and you can help each other to grow. So that's one of the big lessons I, I learned, how important it is to uh, network with other authors and how they can help each other to succeed. Okay. And, and one thing I think in any field of content creation, books or, or paintings or anything, um, when, when it goes to the terminology of marketing, uh, advertising is the singular, it's, it's a one-way communication and promotion, just like you said, is that is that networking and doing this and that. Um, do you ever find sometimes that it's a little daunting, you know, because sometimes you get in a certain area and certain people, um, they flock to what you have then certain other avenues just just gets real flat. Well, that's one of the dangers of, um, well, it's a mistake, let's say, that a lot of new authors make. And I probably did it in the beginning, too. You can't 
market your book to the whole world because not the whole world is interested in your book. Depending on what you write, there is you have to find where the readers are. Now, in the case of children's books, even though you're writing a children's book, and my books are mainly targeted for K through six, the children aren't the ones who are buying the books. The parents and the grandparents and the teachers and maybe librarians would be the ones who are buying your books. So your book has to appeal not only to the child, but it also has to have an appeal to the adult who's going to be buying it. So you have to keep that in mind when you're writing your promotional material. You have to, you know, sell your book not only to the child, but explain to the adult who's going to uh, buy the book, how they'll benefit from it. And I have a lot of adults who follow my series uh, just as enthusiastically as the kids do, because they, they tell they tell me, well, I, I learned so much from reading this book. And some of them actually, you know, look forward to the next one. And, and, and they'll even give me suggestions. Oh, did you ever think of doing a book about this or that? Or, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you have to work with, uh, your uh, target group, the people who are really going to be interested. So it's a mistake to just try to get your book out there everywhere uh, because you won't succeed that way. Not everybody is interested and you shouldn't try to sell yourself to people who are not going to want to have a relationship with you and, and with your product. Okay. Now, I need to ask you this real, real personal question. Um, you're working on 14 books, but you already got 14 reasons why we should study history. Could you tell us those? Okay. Well, there, I, I arbitrarily limited to 14. <laughs> there are a lot more. <laughs> more? <laughs> Basically, we can, we can kind of combine them uh, to, first of all, to understand uh their own moral, moral identity to to get a moral identity of, for themselves and um, other reasons to study history are to understand uh, the way we act and the way other people act to get and to get a broader perspective on the world because uh, our world is made up of all kinds of human people who have very different cultures, backgrounds, customs, traditions, and learning about history gives us a broad perspective of uh, the world that we live in. So when we study history, we learn about ourselves, we learn about uh, who we are, we get a perspective, we learn about if we have any biases or if if there are certain things in our culture that maybe we accept that other people don't accept. Uh, we learn about communities and how some communities are very different from us. 
Uh, they enjoy different foods. They have different customs. They dress differently. Uh, they uh, are drawn uh, to certain traditions, whereas we may not be. We may share some similar traditions with them. And learning history helps us become engaged citizens because when we learn about other people and we discover that we have similarities and differences, we learn that we can have commonalities and we can work on solutions to problems. So it helps us develop uh, a, a common bond with other people. It gives us role models. It gives us a kind of foundation, examples of how some people met challenges, how they succeeded, how they failed, and how we can use their experiences as kind of like a legacy for our future. Because my philosophy is if you don't understand how you got to where we are today, how can you possibly understand where, where we are or where we're going to go in the future? To, to me, history is more evolutionary. It's an evolving process. It's not revolutionary, not looking at history in terms <laughs> of battles and, you know, major events that we say, oh, this is part of history. But it's the common everyday things that really make up human history. So um, those are just some of the reasons. I mean, there are, <laughs> a lot of them are overlapping. And uh, the, again, the critical thinking, it helps us to think, to focus, to analyze, to reason, to understand facts as opposed to opinions. We have to learn to rely on sources that can be verified, not just, again, what we hear in social media or what one of our friends says and um, what we just randomly accept because it's the easy answer. Okay. Now, let me ask you this real challenging question. Um, as a youth, I used to watch this show called 2020. It was a news magazine that I watched growing up on Friday nights uh, at a young age. Di Diane Sawyer was on there. John Stossel was the comedy. But Barbara Walters had journalistic integrity. So I always like to take a moment inside uh, the show and do a little bit of journalistic integrity. Uh, make something that's going to move the crowd a little bit more than my normal. My questions aren't generic, but you know what I mean. So here we go real quick. History. I'm going to give you a statement and I want you to give me an answer uh, to what you think of this history. Is it a lesson learned or a mistake that we won't make again? Um, more a lesson learned. It's really, sometimes it can be a mistake that we won't make again, but unfortunately, sometimes we make the same mistakes over and over again. It is a lesson learned. Sometimes we don't follow through on the lessons that we learn. Okay, I like that answer. Now, here's one. This one is real challenging. And this actually comes from um, my mother, because whenever I do these podcasts, I do discuss the guests that I have on. Um, the terminology misappropriation is something that people want to tie to culture. And that's not what I want to tie misappropriation to. 
I'm going to tie misappropriation to history real fast. Do you believe that there is a heavy level of misappropriation of history because of social media and stuff like that? Because I tell you like a, a shift in, in, in history, this is a real big shift. Growing up, we were taught, at least I was taught that Columbus, Christopher Columbus discovered a lot of these different places. The older I got, the history changed about him, made him a bit more ruthless, made him not in such a great light that he was when I was a kid. Now that's going from 1989 to finishing school in 2004. So in that brief span of time, his history changed from this loving person, well, not loving, but this uh, character that people had kind of uh, given not a pirate role to, to later on finding out all this different stuff. So do you think at some point there are misappropriations in history? I don't know if it's so much a mis appropriation. I think it's sometimes failing again to do all of the critical thinking. Now, we're also constantly learning new information about things because we continue to discover. We find artifacts all the time. Uh, we find historical documents that have been lost and, and sometimes get rediscovered. We find out new information. The problem is, has the information been verified or is it just a collection of opinions that people have generated and made popular through you know, socialization, social kind of viewpoint? So I don't know if it's so much misappropriation. Sometimes history is changed intentionally by people who want to see history in a certain lens, through a certain filter, through a certain bias. Sometimes it's non-intentional uh, because they get a piece of information which hasn't been verified. And, the, and this is a problem with uh, the way the news is reported today, I think, because when people hear something on the news, they automatically accept it as fact. And it's not always factual the way it's reported because today our news is very often uh, given through the lens of uh, journalistic panels. So you'll have a reporter uh, saying uh, something has happened or making a statement. And then they'll have three or four people that will come on and comment on it. And depending on uh, where you get that piece of news, there are some media outlets that give the news a certain slant and then they don't report the other side or you know depending if you flip this a channel you will sometimes see the news and you will be very astonished to see that the reporters on several different channels are using the exact same language which is very strange all of a sudden you know one news piece is being reported exactly the same way so I think uh, there, there's some laziness in journalism today. There's some, not the old fashioned news broadcast, the original when 
television first began and you had somebody like a Walter Cronkite who would just report facts and there would be nobody else coming on to you know, give an opinion about it. It was just the fact. You got the fact. And then you could draw your own conclusions. But now, again, right away, we're given information. And then we hear other people's opinions on it. And some people, when they hear that, they just say, oh, yeah, well, he said that. So, you know, it must be true. So sometimes we're given, um, you know, again, a false bias or uh, you know just one side of the story maybe not the other side of the story and we're not given time to process and and think through the information again a lot of reporters in their effort to get the story will put the story out before they have all of the information and then the next day you get the story with different information so <laughs> I, I think I think that's a problem with our modern, again, communications have changed. One of the things that you have to study when you're looking at a historical problem is how has it been communicated? You know, was it verified? What, who said it? What else was going on that influenced what happened? So again, all of these factors, you know, we have to take the time to think things through. And I think that's a problem uh, today in, in society and in education because uh, the way uh, we, we react, you know, uh, young, the younger generation wants that instant answer and they, they don't wanna take the time to think to analyze to and and they these are things that they're going to have to learn to do if they're going to be successful in the world in any kind of job you're going to have to do critical thinking you're going to have to ask, you know ask those questions you're going to have to analyze you're going to have to make sure that you give all the sides of the story uh you know so it, it's something that i think is now uh, unfortunately been uh neglected too much and i think we have to get back to that and and i like the way that you said all that for the simple fact though um something that gets deeper into this uh the next question is going to ask you about this terminology that i got told about when i was in college i didn't learn about this in high school or anything so somewhere between 06 or 07 i heard this term factual opinions and that kind of to me has always seemed like what the news is now it's a factual opinion uh, like you said, you get the information and then you get this opinion. And then people, for some reason, and, and I wish that it was taught better to children because I learned in school the difference between a fact and an opinion. I learned how to deductively go in and figure out the merit of what I'm listening listening to or reading or however I'm ingesting, you know, the sound of or whatever I'm processing in my brain. And over time, obviously, fact-checking and a Fact-checking opinions has become uh, what's made factual opinions. So what do you think about that terminology, factual opinions? Well, they're two different things. I, I don't think there's such a thing really as a factual opinion. A fact is something that can be proven true. An opinion is what one person 
thinks about something. I, I have a little teaching lesson video on my YouTube channel about okay. this fact versus <laughs> opinion. So like, for instance, you know, a dog has four legs. That's the fact you can prove that dogs, unless injured, would all have four legs. But when you say dogs are better than cats, that's an opinion. Some people are dog lovers, some people are cat lovers. So that's an opinion. So when you say, you know, factoid or fact opinion, that's very commonly done today, but they are two very different things. <laughs> okay. Now, um, we get it, we go around and um, we learn about your books and we learn a lot of stuff from you about history today. Um, so my lasting thing that I want to throw out here to you is this. Uh, the audience has got, you've gotten very personable with them and they understand what you're going to provide to them once we uh, finish this episode release it and they'll have all kinds of information to learn about you in the show notes but the audience needs to know you a little bit better can you please tell us of some type of um hidden talent or some type of uh ability that you have that no one knows about i've had people on this show a lady out of georgia goes into goodwill and buys uh some type of fabric uh painting or something she puts rhinestones on it, resells it, and makes a lot of money. Another lady, the um, sound of a can carbonation opening will ruin her day. Um, there's a guy that is a world record holder in um, solving a Rubik's Cubes. Um, my big secret, and everybody knows, is that I can't swim, but I'm always in, in very exotic places or I'll be on the sides of mountains hanging off like I'm about to fall in the water. But I have somebody beside me that can swim. So... Uh, if you wouldn't mind, Barbara, please tell us something that no one knows about you or just a hidden talent that only a few people know. Well, it's funny because my <laughs> my fear is very similar to yours. When I was when I was a kid, about 10 years old or so, I got pushed when I was in the ocean at the beach and I went under, I lost my balance, and it was a couple of minutes that before I could um, get, you know, get my footing again. So uh, what happened is uh, I got really scared. I got pulled out and I was fine, but I got really scared. So ever since then, I'm afraid of, uh, the water so i never i try i never swam i when i went to college i was determined and i took a, a, a course in swimming at college and actually the teacher told me i was one of the few people that she had ever encountered who was a non-floater which didn't make me feel very good <laughs> but i never learned to swim but today i kind of conquered that fear um i you know i will go into a pool and i'll usually i'll, I'll wear a life vest but I will float around and I will take my feet off the bottom and I will, you know, and I, I do love the water though. So I love to go on a boat and uh, I, I even have a, 
a small little pontoon boat that I like to go on. And uh, I will be very adventurous and go out on on the, a river and, and, and not have any fear. But um, I, you know, I still have that kind of nagging fear from the time I almost drowned. And, you know, I've overcome a lot of it, mm -hmm. uh, but not 100%. And, and I can, like, it's something about that, like, I freeze up in the water. So, yeah, we definitely are common there on that. Now, uh, last bit I would like you to do real quick. Could you please leave a lasting impression on the audience and on all the people that are going to hear this interview, the new people that will come along, um, leave them kind of with like a billboard of what you stand for and what will be the future for you. Okay. Well, I think what I most stand for, uh, and again, my mission right now is my, my little cartoon character's motto. Uh, if you don't know your history, you don't know what you're talking about. That about okay. sums me up in, mm -hmm. my, in a nutshell. All right. And I am JR from West Virginia Uncommonplace here with Barbara Mahika. Correct? Correct. Correct. Thank you. Thank the Lord for that because so many times I get last names mixed up. Um, and she has taught us about history today just a little bit. I need you guys to head over to her website. Once again, she'll plug it for us. LittleMissHistory.com and um, in the show notes that will be provided for the show when the show is uh, set to be released, definitely you'll be able to catch up with Barbara and everything that's going on with her. Once again, this is West Virginia Commonplace. I am JR. Uh, head over to the website, um, wvuncommonplace.com. Inside the newsletter, we will be having information about this episode available for next week so that you guys will be able to get a little bit enhanced uh, view of things before you hear the audio. So uh, definitely make sure you're over there. And if you're not over there, definitely get over there. And if you're not listening to the show all the time, definitely uh, find some episodes you like and you will get in tune with West Virginia Commonplace. Once again, it's JR and I am signing off.